Welcome to another episode of the Deborah Health Report, where we dive into current health and medical topics to keep the Delaware Valley informed and updated. Last month, we focused on the signs of coronary artery disease and learned that there have never been more effective treatment options and screening tools to help identify CAD in its earliest stages, even with patients who are at high risk for developing it. This month, we discuss carotid artery disease, which occurs when fatty deposits, called plaques, clog the blood vessels that deliver blood to the brain and head. The clog increases the risk of stroke. This episode highlights diagnosing, treating, and living with carotid artery disease. Here's Rasa Kay. Hi, I'm Rasa Kay, and we're looking at an aspect of atherosclerosis that can cause wide-ranging disability in the body. It's carotid artery disease in the neck arteries that take oxygenated blood to the brain. When blood flow through your carotid artery is blocked, it can lead to the brain attack, known as a stroke. We get into it with vascular and endovascular surgeon Dr. Gregory Domer at Deborah Heart and Lung Center. Vascular disease is a systemic disease, so if you have it in one bed in the body, you have it typically throughout. It may never become clinically relevant, but we're speaking specifically about the carotid arteries. So those are the two large arteries on either side of the neck that supply the vast majority of blood flow to the brain. So carotid artery disease is a buildup of plaque, so atherosclerotic plaque, which is a conglomeration of uh, fat lipids, uh, which is another form of fat, calcium, fibrin, and just cellular debris. And over time, it can cause narrowing of the arteries. So similar, most people are familiar with coronary artery disease, where plaque builds up, limiting the blood flow through those arteries. Same thing happens in the carotid arteries. So that's why it's important to diagnose and treat. Carotid arteries, basically, that's where you can take your pulse in your Correct. neck, yeah. right? You can just put your hands up and either side, that's it. Right. What are the risk factors then for carotid artery disease? Anything in particular or basically it's the same risk factors for plaque buildup anywhere? Yeah, generally it's the same risk factors. So people with high blood pressure, diabetes, Smoking is the big one. So people that are smoking, we can actually stop the progression of carotid artery disease or any vascular disease in any vascular bed throughout the body with smoking cessation. So that's the big one. But sedentary lifestyle, people that have dyslipidemia or high cholesterol levels are all much more susceptible to developing carotid artery disease. How about age? Age is also a risk factor. So people typically greater than age of 65 are at increased risk. Symptoms of carotid artery disease? Symptoms of carotid artery disease, unfortunately, there are no sort of warning signs. So the first symptom of carotid artery disease is a stroke or a mini stroke. Uh, and if, a, if one of those things occurs, it's important to get immediate medical attention. This is basically where we're really worried about blockages in the carotid artery. It's not a question of a heart attack, but a brain attack, correct? Correct. So it would be the same. It's lack of blood flow to whatever portion of the brain uh, has been being supplied by that particular vessel. How might you realize that you're at particular risk of a blockage there? I mean, that's a great question. So it comes down to screening. So people that have the risk factors, so age, hypertension, diabetes, dyslipidemia, smoking, uh, and they have vascular disease in other parts of their body should probably be screened. 
uh, because again, the first sign of a stroke is a stroke. So there are really no warning signs ahead of that. Fortunately, most people have a mini stroke, which usually resolves within 24 hours, and that's what we refer to as a transient ischemic attack. If the symptoms last longer, then it's called a stroke, and that can usually have longer lasting effects. So screening can be done with just simply an ultrasound. So there's no radiation associated with it. It's a relatively quick and easy test. And with that, we can determine the degree of plaque present. And if that degree of plaque present is causing a significant stenosis. And then if there is significant plaque there, we would typically follow that with an MRA or a CAT scan. MRA just being an MRI with the A signifying that we're doing an angiography or looking specifically at the arteries. The TIA that you mentioned, and you called it a mini stroke, can the symptoms of a TIA be as dramatic as those we hear about for what would be a a more severe stroke situation? I mean, the, the physical presentations. Yeah. So typically, TIA is a little bit, uh, the symptoms aren't as profound as somebody that's had a a major stroke. So there's an acronym uh, known as BEFAST, B-E-F-A-S-T, and the B meaning balance. So if somebody sustains sudden balance changes where they lose their balance and fall, that's less likely indicative of carotid disease, but can be. And the E being eyes. So if somebody were to lose complete vision in one eye, so we're not talking about some blurriness, but most people describe it as a lampshade coming down over their eye and the, the, the picture going completely out, going black. And then the fast portion, the F being facial asymmetry, so drooping of one side of the face. Uh, and A being the arms, which can be the arms or the legs, but sudden weakness in, in one side of the body in the arms or legs can be indicative of a stroke. And then the S being speech. So if somebody starts having garbled speech or you're unable to understand what they're saying because they're saying words maybe that aren't appropriate for what they're trying to describe, that can be indicative of a stroke. And then the last one just being time. So if you see these things and you're concerned about stroke, that person needs to get to the emergency room as soon as possible. And what might then happen at the emergency room? So in the emergency room, you'd be evaluated. That would be a sort of a fast-track person that would be emergently evaluated by one of the care providers and then determine whether or not that person then needs a CAT scan to look for any kind of blockage in the carotid arteries or in the blood vessels going to the brain. So a brain attack is treated like a heart attack in the ER in, yeah. in terms of the swiftness. Yeah, time is of the essence, yes. So that if it is a stroke... That can usually be reversed if caught within the first four hours is typically the time frame or four and a half hours. If caught within four and a half hours, then something called TPA, which is a clot-busting medicine, can be administered. And then the patient evaluated whether any kind of carotid intervention is necessary. So if someone was suffering a TIA with any of these visible symptoms, you might actually administer TPA for a, a TIA? 
Well, that's a good question. So that person would get evaluated with a CAT scan or a CTA, again, an angiography examination, looking at the blood vessels. And if they were to find blocked vessels leading into the brain or even just in the neck, in the carotid artery itself, because again, the carotid artery extends up to the brain where it's a sort of a network of smaller blood vessels. And if one of those blood vessels is found to be occluded, TPA probably would be administered because, again, we don't know if that TIA is going to actually be a stroke or if it's going to be transient in nature. So you've got reduced blood flow, ruptured plaques, and blood clot blockage. These are all different things. Could you break it down? So blood clot uh, blockage, that's where one of the vessels, it's typically one of the smaller vessels that the carotid artery leads up to in this network of vessels in the brain. Uh, one of those vessels being blocked, that's where TPA could potentially break up that clot and, and dissolve it, essentially. And that could be from AFib even. Right. So about 800,000 strokes occur in this country. About 800,000 people per year are affected by stroke. And that results in about 150,000 deaths. But only two, 200 to 250,000 of those are attributed to the carotid arteries. So right. Uh, valvular heart disease, atrial fibrillation. There are other causes of stroke. The ones causing uh, stroke attributed to the carotid arteries are what we treat. They reduce blood flow in the ruptured plaques. Correct. Then if you have carotid artery disease, that any of those scenarios are possible, or are there indications within the definition of a diagnosed patient then that they'd be more likely to experience? So what I'm guessing is if it's carotid artery disease, you're looking most specifically at reduced blood flow and ruptured plaques. It's important to know that it's not just the reduced blood flow that's occurring that's causing the stroke. Ultimately, it is reduced blood flow. But what ultimately happens, especially in the ruptured plaques, is it's not the narrowing causing the stroke. So in other words, it's not that there's diminished flow coming through that narrowed artery. As the artery narrows, it tends to be more susceptible to something called embolization. And that's where small particles can then break off and go into the brain and block one of these smaller vessels in the brain, in this network of vessels. And depending on which part of the brain it's supplying, it could be an important portion of the brain that affects speech. It could affect arm movement or, again, seen as asymmetry in the face. The weird thing is that your carotid artery seems to be the one that's closest to the surface. It's, it's like the one that we can actually kind of handle. We can yeah. take our pulse through it, but it's not as though you could be rubbing your neck and say, hmm, it seems a little stiff. Hmm, I think there's something in my carotid. With, with the carotid artery so close to the surface, do you get a little more information from it? You know, that's a good question. It, it seems as though it might make it a little more simple. And that's why we can do ultrasound. So uh, we can do on ultrasound on almost all the blood vessels in the body. But the ones that are deeper, for instance, the thoracic aorta, which is the large blood vessel that comes off the heart, and it's the major conduit that supplies all the blood flow to our body, we can't see that with ultrasound because it's deep in the chest, behind the lungs. Uh, but the carotid arteries, because they're so close to the skin surface, are easily seen with ultrasound. Well, when we talk about the warning signs of a stroke, you talked about FAST, and those are 
basically indications that a stroke might be happening. Is there anything leading up to that that could be a flag? The only other thing that uh, is not part of that acronym that could be leading up to a stroke is something called amaurosis fugax. And what that is is complete vision loss in one eye. So whenever I ask people about this, I don't want them to be concerned that they have a little bit of blurry vision and that they could be having a stroke or a mini stroke. This is complete vision loss where most people describe it as like a lampshade coming down over their eye where everything then just goes black. Something like that happens, again, that should be something that you should report to your doctor and probably even come to an emergency department. Are TIAs silent ever? That's, that's kind of a difficult question to answer, but I guess the best way to answer that is sometimes we do have patients that are brought in by family members who have noticed some speech disturbances and the patient not even aware of it. So, yes, that would, I guess, be a sort of a silent TIA because the patient is unaware. And sometimes they have confabulation of words where they're using words in inappropriate sequence that they're not even aware of. But I think anybody that has significant weakness of one side of their body, their arms or their legs, that's going to be obvious. But oftentimes the speech will not be so obvious. The other time that patients may come in is they'll have the visual disturbances that we described, the amaurosis fugax. So they'll go to their ophthalmologist and their ophthalmologist will do an examination and see their retinal artery is now occluded. And so those people will come in, get a carotid duplex, and will find significant disease. So that's another area where it could be described as sort of a silent because they're not attributing their symptoms to carotid artery disease. Again, another route to your office, basically. Right. How is stroke treated then, and what kind of chances of recovery do you have depending on the timeline? So it depends on the etiology or the cause of the stroke. So as vascular surgeons, we treat the carotid artery uh, if it's the culprit. And again, about one-third of that 800,000 patient volume is from the carotid arteries. So the way we treat it, there are really three ways of treating it. The gold standard and traditional way of treating uh, carotid artery disease is with a simple surgery called a carotid endarterectomy where a small incision is made on the side of the neck and we actually go in, open the artery and clean the artery out and then patch it. And that takes about two hours, two and a half hours and people tend to do very well from it, go home the following day. So it's anywhere from a one to two day hospital stay typically. The other way is with stenting and there are two methods of stenting. So about 20 years ago we started with transfemoral stenting, which means we put a needle through the femoral artery, or we can even go through the arm, and then insert a stent into the carotid artery and open up that area of narrowing. But again, the important piece is that it stabilizes that plaque and helps to prevent it from breaking off. The problem with that procedure is that the stroke risk is a little bit higher. So we've now come up with a method of putting a stent in where we avoid the aorta, again, that major conduit blood vessel coming off the heart, because that can also be filled with plaque. And so as you're making your way up through the aorta to the carotid artery, plaque can be dislodged there. So in an effort to avoid the aorta, we go straight to the carotid artery and again make a small incision just above the collarbone where we then 
insert the stent through that, that insertion site. And the other portion that we can do there, the other piece that's important is we can provide a much better form of embolization control. So anytime we're dealing with these arteries and we're placing stents, I kind of describe it sometimes to patients as breaking a piece of peanut brittle. And when you do that, small particles can break off. And those particles can break off and go to the brain and cause stroke. So when we do transfemoral stenting, we put up a, it's like an umbrella. And it does capture the vast majority of these particles breaking off. With the TCAR procedure, however, we actually create a suction where we're removing blood flow coming down so the blood is if we're fixing the left carotid or the right carotid endarterectomy we would be relying on the left side bringing blood up the brain and coming back down the right side so we're removing that blood flow so that the particles can't go towards the brain they come back through the, the device which then goes through a filtration device and then is reinserted into the femoral vein so the risk of stroke is, is much, much less. What do these particles look like when you gather them up that way? They look like small pieces of peanut brittle. They're just very small little crystals, typically. Sometimes they're soft, but the majority of the time, they're hardened small pieces of calcium. Do you show the patient? If they I, ask, we I, usually take a picture. I would totally want to see it. Yeah. It's like, what did you get out of my artery? What was causing my problem? I want to see it. Yeah. Most people don't want to see it, (laughs) but uh, occasionally, yes. That's vascular and endovascular surgeon, Dr. Gregory Domer. And while we can banter about a successful endarterectomy, carotid artery disease is no laughing matter. More on that procedure, T-car stenting, and living with carotid artery disease in our next podcast, which drops the first Wednesday of the month. I'm Rasa Kay. You can always listen to all of the informative Deborah Doctor interviews at DeborahHealthReport.com. Schedule an appointment at demanddeborah.org.